Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio Show. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's disease and memory loss, which came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you that are new to the show, I want to give you just a brief introduction to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Our channel expert living with Alzheimer's, Rick Phelps, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to make the show or not today. Rick is the founder of the group on Facebook called Memory People, which is a great support group. If you're not familiar with it, I I highly encourage you to go and check that out. Rick himself has been diagnosed with early onset in June of um, 2010. So he definitely understands and is out to make some changes in the world. Today's show is going to feature the chairman of the board and CEO of the new state-of-the-art community for those living with Alzheimer's disease. Abe's Garden is projected to break ground in 2012, and it's in Tennessee, and it's believed to be the first of its kind in the nation, combining 40 living suites, a 24-7 daycare kind of respite center, combined with a research facility. So I'm really excited to have them on the show. But before we get started there, again, I just want to encourage all of our listeners to use our chat box or call in live with your questions and comments. Um, The number to call in would be uh, 714-364-4757 and then just push one. So I'm pleased to introduce our guest today. Um, The chairman of the board is Michael Schmerling of Abe's Garden. And Michael's passion for building a first-class Alzheimer's community came from watching his father's journey. Michael's dad... Abram, or Abe Schmerling, was a caring physician who concerned himself um, basically with the health and well-being of others. He was a physician particularly concerned with the um, underdeserved. And so Abe himself had suffered for more than 11 years with Alzheimer's disease, and he passed away in November of 2006. Mike says that why this devastating um While this disease was devastating to not only he and his family, it really opened their eyes to the dramatic need for facilities with a heart and soul that would be centered on caring for those who have the same fate. Mike is a prominent businessman involved in many professional associations and activities and businesses, as well as public service organizations. He has won numerous awards, of which I'm only going to name a couple the Community of Nashville Human Relations Award in 2009. He won Nashville's Business Journal Future 50 Award seven different years. And also the American Institute of CPA's National Public Service Award in 2007. Mike is married to Lisa um, and has been for 32 years and they have three children, Andy, Molly, and Katie. So welcome to the show, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you very much. 
Well, wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and introduce your partner in crime here, um, who is the CEO of Abe's Garden, and that is Andrew Sandler. Andrew is charged with the leadership responsibilities for Park Manor, which is an independent living retirement community, but he's also responsible for the implementation of Abe's Garden's Alzheimer's community with three neighborhoods and an adult day program. Phase uh, one and two are scheduled to break ground in 2012. Along with this, he is coordinating the research relationship between Vanderbilt University and Abe's Garden. Andrew is on the board of directors, or has been on the board of directors since 2003 for the Gulf State Association of Homes and Services for the Aging. He is also on assisted living, uh, uh, assisted living cabinet for Life Services Network in Illinois. And Andrew, Andrew has held several positions over the years um, in within the Alzheimer's Association, the Louisiana chapter. So thank you, Andrew, so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Well, good. Um, is there anything um, for Mike that you would like to add to your background um, before we get started? And then I'll ask Andrew the same question. Uh, really, I think you've you've covered it. Uh, this is a, a, as you probably can imagine, a very personal thing, um, and it's something that I've decided that um, I needed to do uh, with the remaining years I have left. Uh, hopefully, quite a few to try to uh, create a, a model. That's the real goal. That when uh, my dad was sick, we we had trouble finding a, a place that was really uh, flexible enough for the state of his condition at the time, and we realized that. Uh, this was not a problem uh, uh, that didn't exist in, in many places, that the evidence-based science wasn't really being applied as well as it might be able to, and uh, this was something to have one model when someone wants to do something in a different community. There'd be one place to go in the United States and say, well, before we do anything, we want to come see Abe's Garden because it's got some some things they're doing, uh, training programs, et cetera, that are really considered novel and uh things we want to study before we do something in our own community. So that's the, that's the one thing I would add about uh, the idea of creating a center of excellence. Wonderful, wonderful. How about you, Andrew? Was there anything else you wanted to add about yourself? Just that. I was in Illinois running in an assisted living community, and when I found out about this wonderful opportunity, it just when I met the board of directors and Mike, the passion here, um, it's just so unique that I'm just really thrilled to be here. So... That's why I'm in Nashville, because of this wonderful opportunity. Well, exciting. I'm jealous, because I felt the same way when I talked with Mike on the phone, you know, a few weeks ago. It's just, uh, it's incredible, and it's rare when you meet others that have that similar passion, and it, it, I can't imagine how much fun it must be working together. So so kudos to both of you and, and the rest of your board. I think it's a, a fabulous concept that you're that you're going to develop down there, and I can't wait to um, have both of you tell us more about that. But first off, I, I always like to start out kind of with a personal note regarding um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And Mike, I'm going to ping pong this one to you. And um, I know that I had told everybody that your dad had the disease, but can you give us a, a little more background in terms of maybe what you went through as a family member that created this passion in you to really make a difference? Well, my dad um, uh, 
struggle with the disease probably a lot longer than the average in the United States. Uh, his, uh, from the time he was diagnosed, and, and first of all, he practiced internal medicine for 45 years here in Nashville. Six months after he retired, he was diagnosed with early onset and spent the next 11 years kind of going downhill as, as people do with the disease in the various stages, and, and, and as you said, passed away in 2006. Uh, during the course of his disease, um, at the very outset, uh, my mother took care of him for the first four and a half years at home. Um, and it, as people that struggle with this disease uh, with family members know, um, it gets a little worse every day, a, a little worse every week. And um, it, there was a point in time where it was going to it was going to destroy her, and uh, he had to, he had he was unable to live at home anymore. And after that, he. Uh, we started looking at various facilities. First, he started off in a day program and um, went to a facility here in Nashville that offered these kind of services. They've since gone out of business. They, it's a very expensive proposition. That's why you see so few excellent programs, I think. But uh, after that, he uh, was um, uh, able to get accepted into a um, program that was a residential program. Uh, he was there six weeks, and behavioral issues and other things, they really weren't set up for him. Uh, we found with this facility and other facilities we've seen that uh, in many, many cases, the facility itself is really assisted living or acute skilled care nursing, and they add on a wing or a unit or a section um, with a locked door and call it their dementia center or memory center or Alzheimer's care. But there's really no special training of the staff. There's no tr special facility design or um, programming. So what my dad suffered, in large part, was a lot of boredom, um, a lot of turnover in staff, um, people who really weren't trained, good heart, wonderful, caring people, but but lacked a skill set necessary and really some development training for the patients required uh, for dealing with people with this this, uh, this disease. So during the course of his uh, the next six and a half years, he migrated from facility to facility. Uh, money wasn't really an object in our family for his care, but even that, uh, for many people, that is a big impediment. Um, but in our case, it wasn't. Yet we couldn't find a place that would we considered adequate and that he was happy at, and that was what we really wanted. We him to enjoy um, a daily life and, a, and, a, and an existence that was meaningful for him in the situation uh, we found ourselves in. So uh, after living with that, um, going through the process, he finally um, ended up in a, in a facility that was really dedicated to Alzheimer's care, but we really did not find their programming. There was no program. They would sit in front of TVs and uh, be relatively inactive most of the day and um, decided that this was really something, and I, I do not come from a healthcare background. My dad and, and two brothers are both in uh, serious healthcare roles, and sister, but uh, I had none. They were all out of town in the beginning, living elsewhere, and I was here. Uh, my sister uh, did relocate from Baltimore to move to Nashville to try to help care for dad as well, and has been a, a, a godsend in that, in that regard uh, prior to his death. But uh, really, I started studying and learning about the disease and about the other facilities, started touring facilities all over the country, and just developed a passion for you know, what, what we were doing in this country uh, in terms of getting better and improving, like businesses have to do, uh, to care for a growing, uh, ever-growing uh, population of people inflicted with this disease. So that's, that's the color I would put on how I, how I find myself now 
uh, kind of dedicated to spending uh, the rest of my, my days uh, building a, a facility that really will be a center of excellence and a model for other communities and for-profit and not-for-profit. What we're doing here at Aves Garden is, a, is completely non-profit. The IRS approved our 501c3 for us almost immediately in seven months, and we've been going onward since then. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, how about you, Andrew? Any um, personal connection that you've had with Alzheimer's disease or dementia in general? Well, I guess I'm lucky that I don't have a personal connection, but I've I've had the opportunity to um, facilitate several Alzheimer's support groups over the years, um, so I know how the disease, how devastating this disease is for, for family members. Um, but I think my passion really is, as I've been in the operating standpoint and the management standpoint, seeing how, I know I've visited a number of communities, I think I've run a couple that were great, how an environment can make such a difference when a person finally has to go into an assisted living or skilled nursing setting, how you can make a difference in the lives of that person with quality programming, um, and also how the family can feel like they, that they can feel comfortable that their loved one is in a good place. So I've seen how this disease has impacted people from several perspectives over the years. Wonderful. Well, that just rolls us right into my next question. And, Mike, again, I'll let you kick this off. What would you say are the most important things that people should consider when they're choosing a residential community for their loved ones? Well, I can only speak from my own experience and what I've learned from touring quite a few facilities all over the country that um, are considered um, important facilities before you start one, which I think is a good is a good uh, practice. Um, the thing I would look at is you really have to walk to the facility, um, talk to some of the other family members of people who have uh, relatives in the facility. I think references are always important. Uh, people who have uh, had loved ones in these facilities for a number of uh, months or years, uh, people that are no longer there. What was your experience with the facility? Um, really. Uh, study and kind of learn as much about the staff as you can. What's their turnover rate? Um, what kind of special staff training or uh, initial credentials are required to work there? In many states, they don't have regulations. Uh, so, you know, sometimes they have a high school degree, no formal education. Uh, nice, again, caring people, compassionate people, but really don't have the skill sets to understand this particular uh, disease and the nuances of this disease. So I think just really like you would do for a daycare center for your child. I think that's a probably a reasonable analogy of, of you'd want to get a feel of the environment, a feel for the space, and what does a day look like here? What what is what is my father, my mother, my aunt going to be doing all day? Um, and and who's in charge? And what about at weekends and nights? Ask ask those questions and and talk to people who have experience on the other side of the table with the facility. I, I, I'm a little bit obsessive about it. I would look and see, you know, have they been sued a lot? And have they, are they in trouble with the state? Those are, those are things you say, well, gosh, that's, that's a little aggressive. But, I mean, think about the fact that, that your loved one's going to be there, you know, 24-7 for sometimes years. And that's something that you would, you would probably want to do for, for a child and, and in many cases, this person is totally dependent um, on the facility and the people that work there. So you really want to do a lot of homework. 
Great. Andrew, do you have anything you'd like to add yeah. to that? Well, I'd like to add a couple of things. You know, I think I would tour the community probably at least two times, and I was thinking maybe once at 11, a, once at 11 a.m. and the next time at 3 p.m. because I'd really want to observe during those times, those are two different shifts, what kinds of life enrichment activities are going on at that time. In a real good community, there's going to be more than one thing going on at the same time. And I would really focus on the activity programming um, that is happening. Um, you know, I, I would want my mother to be engaged throughout the day with meaningful, purposeful activities, things that she liked to do. So I would really look at that schedule and I would really try to see you know, and, and watching TV doesn't count necessarily. Really a lot of good purposeful activities I would really focus on. The environment, I think, should look comfortable and familiar like a home would. I don't want it to look like a hospital. I'd look for things like plants and furniture that looks like it belongs into my mother's home. Um, I'd want my mother to have opportunities for privacy. I'd look at the lighting. I wouldn't want an overhead system that was going off all the time. Um, and I would hopefully the community, and not a lot of all of them do, the, if they had an outdoor area that was safe and accessible so that a resident can go in and out when they want to, that would be really important. And another thing I would ask about is, um, you know, the dining schedule, because you can find out if the facility is giving, uh, community is giving choice if residents have access to dining at different times so they don't all get woken up at 8 o'clock and have to eat breakfast at the same time. So I would ask about that also to see if there's some flexibility as far as that goes. Just Wonderful. I, I'm going to add a couple of things in there just because of my experience with my mom and my real estate background in terms of, you know, helping people through transition. And that is to get educated and get out there and start checking things out before you hit that crisis mode. Um, so that you can be really taking in what it is you're observing or the information that you're getting. Because so many times, I think people cannot process um, the, whole, the whole thing. You know, they're just so overwhelmed. I loved that you mentioned about coming out a couple of different times, checking out that shift change. Um, the dining choices vary so much from, you know, you have to get up at this time to others have, you know, five meals a day. Um, there, there's so much to learn and to really figure out what does my person need the most and what's going to work best for them. And the, the last comment I want to make is um, when I go out speaking, I, I, this always makes me chuckle because I agree, too, the activities are really the most important because that's really their social support group. Um, you know, all the other stuff is needed, but the activities is really to me, the purposeful thing that, that for my mom gets her connecting with people. And yet what I find in so many communities is they barely acknowledge the activities people um, in terms of their value or when, they're, when, when communities are speaking about, you know, what it is they have to offer um, or who's attending you know, accredited classes and things. I, I just find that very, very interesting because they to me, really are the heart and the soul of, you know, pulling everybody together and having that peer interaction. So, so what that's worth, that's my two cents there. Um, do you guys have any comments on what I said? Um, well, I think you started off by talking about how families 
make decisions or I, I think to start out with, unfortunately, I think families get, then they decide they have to go into a community with Alzheimer's. Sorry. Um, oh, go ahead. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when families have to go into a community, I think it's they're in crisis mode, um, and it's harder to make a good decision. I don't think that noise is coming from us. I hope not. No, but, I think um, it's at my end, actually. I'm sorry. Okay, good. <laughs> go so, ahead. Um, I think families really need to think ahead um, and that this poss- at some point that this possibility may come about so that they're not picking the very first place that has a bed that it's important to, to do research and learn as much as possible. In my experience, some families spend more time shopping for a used car, I hate to say this, than finding the right community. They'll go to the closest one, and I don't think that's always a good idea. That's very true, very true. Mike, did you have anything that you wanted to comment on? No, I think the two of you pretty much nailed most of the issues that um, are important. And, and, you know, it's just a feel. When you go into a place and you, you realize you know, um, your loved one's going to be there for a while, and uh, 24 hours is a long day, so you want to make sure they have plenty of activities and things to do that they enjoy doing. Exactly. Mike, can you tell us um, maybe some of the qualities that are going to differentiate Abe's Garden from everybody else out there? What what we've tried to do before we uh, started, first of all, just a little context, we started off by acquiring a uh, eight-acre site in a magnificent area, beautiful setting in Nashville. Um, it's, as the crow flies, maybe a mile from Vanderbilt Medical Center, other hospitals, so it's a convenient location and a really a park-like setting. Um, and then we started looking at other facilities that were doing things well in other parts of the country. Um, we don't claim to have all the best ideas, and, and really the partnership with Vanderbilt was was critical to the the idea what what is the scientific community, the people that spend their careers studying this disease and particularly the behavioral side, not the pharma or the MRIs, all the research in that area, but the people working in the in the area of uh, what does a great day look like and how do you how do you change outcomes in terms of uh, the things that happen to people with this population who really are set in places where they're bored and not active and are just parked. And um, so we, we looked at a lot of different places and learned that you know, people like um, flexibility in the programming. Um, they bond, uh, you can imagine, with the staff because they're around them all the time. And, and so you want, obviously, less turnover. And so we're planning a whole series of things that will hopefully reduce that Part of it's compensation and benefits, but they're things like development. Uh, they're important to people in this field that they'll get these development opportunities, they'll get education, uh, strong recognition programs. Uh, we want to encourage people, and, and really people is, are going to be the center of any operation, um, where we are a destination workplace, where people are dying to come to work wherever they are, here or in other markets, they want to work uh, at Abe's Garden. So how do you reverse engineer a place that is in fact uh, held to that level? And you know why, why people in certain fields want to work at Mayo Clinic if they really have a passion about working with people with cancer or MD Anderson or the Betty Ford Center. These are destination workplaces. And so you think about and spend a lot of time 
you know, analyzing how places become so reputable and so outstanding. Uh, and the way they do it is they care for their employees uh, as, as much as they do for the residents themselves. So we're going to create a destination workplace um, and all the things that go around that. Uh, the, the other aspects of the facility that I think make it uh, distinctive um, include the facility itself and really looking at what's important uh, to have a, a patient-centered facility. So we have a lot of outdoor space, uh, space that's safe, spaces they can go outside even in the rain because they're covered. Uh, they'll be able to sit out and, and uh, bird feeders and all kinds of uh, outdoor park space, walking space that's safe, yet uh, unconfining. Um, we want to have programs that are uh, suitable and flexible. Uh, early stage Alzheimer's patients have a different need than people later in the disease. So we want to have that kind of flexibility and really great leadership. Uh, you didn't mention, but Andrew, it, I thought it's, it's interesting. We did a national search when we recruited our CEO. Um, Andrew has worked in this field for many, many years, but it's interesting that his PhD actually was in special education. And I think that, that I think at the beginning of your career was, uh, was working with kids and then had a passion for, for seniors and, and moved. But that, that education, that background, it's kind of saying, you know, what is the, what is the individual needs of the patients and really building a culture at AIDS Garden where everybody's on the same, you know, northbound train, so to speak, uh, in terms of creating an environment and a program and a patient-centered focus that's just different. Of course, the facilities, the architects are working and looking at lots of different facilities across the country that have done particularly interesting things that are working. Uh, that's the best uh, way to gauge if something is a good idea or a bad idea, is it working? Or, or, or is the conditions good and the people happy? So those are the things I would just highlight. Uh, Andrew, you may have a few others that, uh, just in terms of uh, how different. We're also going to be self-sufficient. I should mention that. Uh, a green facility. Uh, we're using geothermal. So there are a lot of other kinds of things that, that would make, we think, a model facility out of Abe's Garden. But Andrew, you have... Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. You know, Mike hit on a good point when he said the word patient-centered, and I think what that means to me is that actually the decision to me, everything, it's not going to be a top-down management style. It's going to be everything starts with the residents, and if everything starts with the residents, that means that whatever the resident needs is how you make decisions. So in an, I hope the culture will be that we empower our frontline employees to be able, they're going to want, they're the ones, the CNAs with the residents all day. They're the ones who know the resident better than anyone. So I think people are going to want to work here because they're going to be empowered to really tell the nurse who supervises them what that resident needs and how they're doing. So I think that's going to be the culture here. Um, I really believe that um, everything will start with the resident with their needs, wishes, and preferences. And that's how we'll take care of the residents. And hopefully all of the staff, I really want the staff to really understand and know what the resident liked to do and what their history was before they come to Abe's Garden. And that, that's very important also. We'll really, that'll be an important way to, for us to really do resident-centered care also. Wonderful. <clears throat> well, I love the, the whole um, tagline of the destination workplace because to me that just says such a high a high level of excellence um, and just um, a, a renowned importance of what it is that 
you know, you're looking at doing, um, and I think that this is happening. So, so I, don't, I don't know if we're getting any feedback or not, but we're having a little, little bit of trouble here. here. <clears throat> and, and I know I'm getting a little feedback, feedback on my end. Are you guys? I, we're hearing a bit of feedback on yours. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I was on Skype, <clears> and it's cutting in and out here. here. So it, it looks like, like I'm going to try to switch back over, over here, here again. So just bear with, with me a hair for a second. Okay. I think okay. we should be better now. Is that any better again? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Skype was <clears throat> was bouncing in and out. Usually it's not a problem, but for whatever, it was cutting in and out there several times, so I apologize on that. Um, well, let's go on and ask a, a few other questions here. Um, as far as um, an, an average day in terms of what you visualize um, your community to be like, can you, can you tell us what that's going to look like for a person? And maybe go over some of these things that, that you had talked about in terms of, you know, dining and activities and so forth. Look, I'll start. Um, I mean, I think it starts out that residents should be able to sleep in just like you and I would do on a weekend, that we mm -hmm. don't have to be woken up at 5 o'clock and get bathed first thing in the morning. Um, I think within reason, I mean, obviously we don't want a resident to sleep in all day, but within reason they should have choices about when they want to wake up, when they can eat breakfast. Um, hopefully breakfast would be served in a window somewhere like between 8 and 10.30 a.m. so that they have that choice. And then really the word choice is very important. Just basically the residents, do they want a bath or do they want a shower? Do they like to bathe in the morning or do they like, like to bathe in the evening? They should be given a choice as far as what kind of clothes that they would like to wear. Hopefully they can pick out, maybe there would be a few choices, but they have some ability to pick the clothes that they wear in the morning. Um, meals would not be served on a tray like in a hospital. They would sit, residents would sit at a table and get their meal one course at a time. So they'd get their soup and then their salad and then their main course and then not their dessert. Not everything served on a tray at the same time. Um, hopefully the dining room would have a country kitchen so that the food comes in and there's some preparation right there where the residents can actually smell the food cooking and they can see it. And the kitchen in most homes is really the activity in the hub. So um, hopefully at Abe's Garden, well, at Abe's Garden we'll have neighborhoods where there will be small groups of residents living around an area where they, have, they would walk to the dining room where the, kids, the meals are being served and they would see all that, um, which is a real nice concept. So residents would live in one of three neighborhoods. Um, and, and each neighborhood would have its own kitchen, and some of the activities would focus around all of that. And residents will be free to walk wherever they want at Abe's Garden, um, and they'll have access to a centralized courtyard outside area where they can go outside when they want to and then they come in. So there won't be any restrictions as far as where the residents can go. It'll be safe everywhere at Abe's Garden for them to be able to walk um, within, within the Abe's Garden. And there'll be lots of stimulating activities Hopefully, lots of animals, um, children, animals, um, and stimulation. Um, hopefully, staff will be encouraged at times to bring their children into work so that residents can interact with the children. 
So that's sort of the way I'm envisioning it. Well, we've got a couple of comments here. One is from uh, Kathy Borey, who is a author, and she's checking flights. She's really excited about your place and, and wants to learn more. Um, and then we've got a comment about um, social activities in terms of, you know, um, so many times people think just keeping them busy um, inside, um, you know, does the trick. And, and Mary Beth is saying, you know, for herself, um, she's looking at an environment that, you know, really has some tasks or work that feels productive, you know, for her husband. He was an athlete and, you know, not just busy work, but, but something that's going to give him purpose. Um, can you speak in terms of activities, what types of things you might might see coming into play there? Yes. And, I mean, the obvious, <laughs> the obvious one, although probably the demographics, it'll be more females than males in our unit. I mean, that the residents would assist with the snacks that are served so that they'd have opportunities, and usually typically it's females that do that. They'd have, I mean, an example is that they would help with the snacks. Um, some residents like to help actually clean up and, and fold things, and not because we need, our, we need their help, but because it's something that makes them, that's what they used to do in the past. Um, as far as men with, act, I mean, obviously the outdoor activities, we'd have activities scheduled in our garden outside. Um, residents would have access to outside gardening activities. Um, for the men, I would even envision them walking around with the, ma with the maintenance staff when the light bulb needs to be changed that they would be doing that. That's one reason also pets, I really believe animals having a lot of our residents can help feed the animals, um, groom the animals. That's something uh, most of them have had animals in the past, dogs. The, the things that are meaningful, not to keep them busy, but things that really were meaningful in the past are important. That's just something that came off to me in the top of my head. Yeah, I would add one thing to that. Um, your listener makes a really good point about um, her husband who was very involved in athletics and probably sports, uh, those kinds of things. Um, it's important to make a distinction between those people who are really at the earlier stages of the disease versus later stage and the kinds of things that and their interests. Uh, I remember when my dad was in the facility when he first went in, he was a uh, kind of an amateur. His hobby he loved his entire life was photography. And so every Saturday I would go over and it would be a day spent, you know, handling cameras. Um, he would take some pictures to the extent he could and, and, and we'd open the back of the cameras and we'd change film. And a lot of it was just around his, uh, something that was meaningful him, for, to him in the past. We'd look at photography books. Um, I think the thing that is important here is to a look at the uh, what is the person uh, interested in, what's the history, and then to individualize activities. If you know that Mr. Johnson used to be a judge and loves to loves the news and books and media, then maybe a, a program is established for him around his interests. Uh, it's not one fits all, and so if somebody has a sports. And, and, and maybe it's watching a game. Maybe it's uh, having a, a speaker come and talk about uh, uh, football. Uh, there are various activities, but I think it's, it's kind of customized to the individual. And you don't have so many people that that's not possible. It's not every minute of every day. It's just keeping them engaged 
and involved in things that are important to them. And that's not over-programming. It's not like, okay, it's 10 o'clock, now we go to exercise, and now it's 11. Let's do, it's, but it's trying to get a, a flow of the day that's compatible with the level of their disease at the time, A, and B, their historic interests and, and current interests. The, the goal here is to keep them active but happy. I think that's great. Kathy had noted on the chat room that she really likes the idea of doing the histories and, and really getting to know who the person is, what their likes and dislikes are, so that you can really tap into that and um, just get a better feel um, to meet their needs. Um, you know, I, I like the idea as well of just being that personalized um, activity. And again, not that everything's going to be a one-on-one, -on -one because I think with any of our friends, we do things that might not perk our interest, but it perks somebody else's. Um, and you just don't quite know until you give it a try and, you know, shake it loose and, and see what happens with it. Now, it sounds like you're, you're going to have some nice grounds out there. Now, is that just going to be for walking, or will you have like a little, you know, golf cart type thing where people can kind of scoot around? Because I know, um, you know, some people are just used to, you know, some guys might be used to cutting the grass and doing different things and just being able to be on something motorized um, might have a little different feel for them. And, and um, any thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely. Um, by the way, your listeners can go to our website, abesgarden.org, um, and learn all about it. But the site is eight acres. Three acres will be, uh, will be placed in a conservation easement for a park. So we'll have a a self-contained three-acre park um, with water features and other kinds of interesting things that they will be able to be involved in. We will have golf carts. Um, we're working on that now to, to, to determine what's required with obviously seat belts and those kinds of things, but to be able to take drives uh, through the park. Um, it sounds like a big park, but three acres goes real quick when you're, when you're planning uh, driving space. But also we have uh, already constructed on the site, first of all, Park Manor is the facility we acquired. We have 90 residents today here that are in an independent living uh, facility. It only occupies about an acre and a half of the site, so Abe's Garden will be built around the perimeter of this facility. The park is also adjacent, and we have an organic garden we've already built with about, I want to say 15,000, 15,000 square feet. We grow tomatoes. This year we've had just a an abundant um, amount of fruit and vegetables, not so much fruit, but vegetables that have come out of this garden. And so there's a lot of activities that are that are garden-centered that people can be involved in. So um, we do have a lot of outdoor walking. Outdoors seems to be um, very important to the population, being able to get out and, you know, have the freedom to hear birds and sunshine and, and rain and and to be able to, to experience all those things you used to do when, when you weren't living in a facility like, uh, like they are now. Could I just add something else that I was thinking about? When we were talking about activities, because I don't think I mentioned it, you can never, and all, throughout all the stages of Alzheimer's, you can never have enough music and art therapy. That, you, that they, It's just so important. Um, so there will be an awful lot of music and art therapy going on here also. And... When residents are in the, at the in their end in, in the latter stages of Alzheimer's, that so we will also be doing a lot of tactile um, things with them and massage things that that they can also benefit from. So that, those are also important aspects, I think, of a garden. 
Wonderful. Are you guys, are you guys going to do anything with helping families, um, almost like train families in terms of how to interact? Because to me, that's one of the biggest problems. You know, families stay away because they just they don't know what to do or how to do it. Yeah, I, we're going to have a social worker, obviously. I want the family to want to come and visit because it's enjoyable, not because it's a duty. Um, so hopefully the families will learn, to, will help the, them have expectations where they can um, enjoy, enjoy their visits with their loved one, be part of the activities, and understand the things that are beneficial from the visit so they walk away feeling good about coming. So, yes, I want families to really be a part of the unit and the, of the community and to feel comfortable. And, and if so, the social workers would work with them to help them feel okay about their visits. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, one of our um, listeners has a question. She had mentioned that there in Texas, there are um, some, let's see, care homes that are in regular houses in neighborhoods, normally like six to 12 people, and they're all licensed as Class B homes, and she thinks that they're providing this type of personal care. Um, and she, her question is, you know, how is a garden going to be different from, um, from a type of, I guess this is kind of more of a group home type setting, um, because you're, you are going to be a little bit larger. Well, I think the, uh, the opportunities with a group home are great. There are a lot of things you can do with a smaller setting. Um, there's probably a much uh, uh, greater family feel when you have six or eight people living in a home together in a self-contained, uh, uh, you know, entity. Um, I think that there is there are some activities and some um, some expertise possible when you get a little bit more scale than that, um, because it is a 24/7 kind of a thing. Um, I did visit some facilities. One great facility that is similar to this in Tupelo, Mississippi, called Traceway. It's part of what's called the Greenhouse Project that uh, Dr. Charles Thomas developed um, years ago. And it's, a, it's very similar. They're small, look like uh, duplex, but they're uh, individual homes with 8 to 12 people. They live together as a family. They have a very uh, um, uh, nice setting. The, the only issues I found with it, I mean, the people were very caring and, 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 the, and the folks were happy there. They seemed to spend a lot of time indoors. Uh, now, in Tupelo, Mississippi, it's also hot in summer and But I, I think the uh, the problem that I, that I observed, that, that they did spend an awful lot of time indoors. There were very few field trips, and there were very few facilities that they could go to um, as a group, uh, as an outing. So if you wanted to do a picnic, there was a little patio, but there weren't ways to expand the mind in terms of being in, in large open spaces, for example, or uh, the, the talent that was uh, there. They did have a social worker that took care of maybe 20 or 30 houses. I don't know what the, what the ratio was, but it's a great facility, great leadership, great management. But I just didn't necessarily see the same kind of opportunities to hire and bring in the kinds of people that you could if you had a, a slightly smaller um, uh, operation than some of the big institutional facilities. So we'll have, say we'll have 36 to 48 people in different neighborhoods, completely different neighborhoods, but we will be able to have some talent that we'll be able to bring in that you couldn't really do if you only had six or eight people. 
So that would be my first comment. You know, the other thing is we're also going to have an adult day program here, which is very important, obviously, um, and that's something that we're going to have the opportunity to do. And the other thing that maybe differentiates us is that our residents are going to age in place, so when residents come in, they're, they're going to spend the rest of their life at Abe's Garden. We're going to be able to meet their needs as the disease changes. So I think that's important. I think it's easier to do that when you maybe have more staff in a place to be able to meet those needs as they change. In other words, I'm not so sure if, if in, the, in many of the group home settings, Texas is not the only place that has a, a uh, licensing authority for group homes, but um, it is very difficult when the person gets into the later stages. They do need to uh, often transfer to acute skilled care nursing or even a hospice program. And the, the goal here is to have people age in place all the way through hospice and never leave the location. Um, keep in mind, my dad's biggest issue was when he had to pack up and move from one facility to another. New environment, new faces, new relationships. Um, it really affected him to a point where we can almost gauge the stages and progression of the disease to the dates and, and times that he relocated. And he relocated five times during the course of the, of the disease. Are you there? Hello? I don't, hi, Hello? Hi, can you hear us? Thanks. Yep, I can hear you. Who okay. knows what's going on? It is a full moon tonight. So <laughs> with me and technology around the full moon, I'm not surprised this is, this is happening today. Um, I, I think it's really um, in, an important factor that you brought up about moving people and how it really does seem to make this disease progress even more um, and the importance of developing relationships and routines um, and patterns for people um, and being able to live, you know, lifelong in one setting I, I think is just a, a wonderful, wonderful way to go. I hear that complaint from so many people where we had to move them again and, you know, now now they're just more disconnected than ever. And the frustration that it causes not only for the person with the disease, but everybody else who is, you know, trying to deliver care and service to them as well. And it's just so sad. Um, you just hate to see that happen. That's for sure. Now, you had talked about kind of doing a 24-7 care and so can you can you tell us a little bit more about about that so this my understanding is is it wouldn't be just your standard day program but that people could come in the evenings or do respite is that um, correct that's the goal that's the goal i think when we first open we'll have a more traditional uh, hours and then the goal would be that that uh, people could be dropped off uh, for an hour uh, a half a day, a day, uh, really centered on the caregiver and the family needs um, and integrating the programming with the existing programming. Instead of uh, many day programs we learned about, my dad was at a facility and, you know, they were open at 10 and they closed at 3.30. And, and those are the hours and hopefully you could get what you had to get done uh, during those time frames. And, and my mother missed weddings. When she had dad at the house, she missed weddings and family events all the time because it was, as many people know with this disease, it's it's 24-7. And yes, she could have gotten caregivers hired, but 
she did that a little bit, but didn't have a really good experience. And and uh, so the idea of being able to have flexibility and, 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 and be open, uh, probably hours like 7 to 8 in the evening, in the beginning, and then have a facility that has uh, even broader hours during, because many of these people are up at night and like to sleep in the day, and that's that's how you find them. That's not necessarily, you know, um, uh, ideal, but we want to try to make the day program as flexible as we can. They've, they've done some experimentation in New York with uh, a 24-hour program, and I haven't really seen any results um, on how that, first of all, how utilized is it. It doesn't make sense to have a lot of staff and overhead if you're not getting utilization, but hopefully, uh, you know, we'll be flexible enough to be able to provide that if there is, in fact, a demand. Yeah, I saw a video on, on YouTube about a community in, in New York that was doing it 24-7, and they said that actually they had more people dropping off their loved ones like around supper time or evening and then picking them up in the morning than they did have um, people during the day, the regular day hours because it gave people a break to still have their own family life get a good night's sleep, and then be ready to go and, and spend a full day with their loved one. Then, So it was almost more like a, a job, you know, type setting is how they, they set it up for a respite thing. And I don't know if that is still the case out there or not, and I, I apologize because I can't remember the name of the facility, but I can easily um, dig that up for you because I know I've got the, the video and my training videos there. But... Um, interesting concept in terms of, you know, utilizing the space and, and trying to make, you know, the the use of the building a little bit more savvy um, and cost effective, you know, if, if if it's able to work. So I thought that was very, very, very unique and, and an interesting accommodation. Can you tell us about the research? How is that going to meld in with Vanderbilt? Um, with your community, how how will that work? Will they be on site, or how is data going to be collected? Or um, the arrangement with Vanderbilt is is very unique. Um, we haven't found many facilities in the country that'll have a formal relationship like we will. First, we have uh, raised money, and we have endowed a chair at Vanderbilt Medical Center. They will be recruiting a world class scientist to Nashville that'll do what it is that endowed chair professors at medical schools do. They will teach in the medical school. They'll train residents, publish papers, make speeches, um, and, and do research, write grants. But they'll also serve, part of the, part of the uh, requirements of the funding is that they will serve as our clinical director, that individual, which will give us the status we need to really have meaningful, publishable research uh, conducted here on the behavioral side as opposed to what most of the research is in this country, as I mentioned before, is in, in other areas. Um, that person will serve as a clinical director of the facility, work with Andrew on the administrative side. Um, so that's that's one thing. The other aspect I'll let Andrew speak to, we have, uh, there are many, when we started the project, Vanderbilt had, had maybe four or five people really focused in, in this disease study, uh, professors in geriatrics, internal medicine, neurology that focused specifically in this area. They probably have, I want to say, 30 or 40 people in the field of geriatrics today that are really, Vanderbilt is just doing some wonderful things in this field, and they've been very generous in allowing us access to, um, you know, in, the, in all the disciplines, uh, School of Nursing, um, 
psychiatry, neurology, internal medicine, physical therapy, to help participate in the design of the facility and the program. And that, I think, is very unique. And the kinds of research they'll do, um, I'll let Andrew speak to, but all kinds of ideas are surfacing now so that once we get started, we'll be able to follow patients through the course of their disease and kind of find out what works and what doesn't. I mean, as we speak, we're working on, Vanderbilt's got some very innovative ways to help staff with ongoing training instead of traditionally what happens is once a month all the staff comes into a room and they um, they get an hour's lecture on some topic and, and lots of, as most of us it's hard to process information for a whole hour. Sometimes my focus is only 10 minutes. So what we're trying to do is have ongoing training um, that's smaller, like maybe 15, 10 to 15 minutes a week on selected topics with um, where people have assignments and you process it. So they've got a real unique um, training module that we're working on. There's so many areas that people, it's hard to say what works and doesn't work, lighting and the types of activities, furniture. And um, so, we, we, you know, we really want to evaluate the sorts of programming things that really make a difference to our residents' lives. See, there's students and, you know, lots of access to students who can actually do this research. It's hard to do applied research when you're running a place unless you have outside um, help. And so Vanderbilt will be that help. So it's, it's exciting. I think it'll be fluid as to the sorts of things we're going to be studying. So I would imagine if a family places their loved ones with you, there'll be some more documentation to sign off in terms of being part of the study then. Would that be an accurate comment? Well, Yes, although everything will be, their, the residents' privacy will always be respected, um, but families would be aware. I can't think of a downside. We're not going to be doing it. We're not going to be withholding treatment from any residents, obviously. So, um, <laughs> but families will be aware. I think that this will be part of it. And there may be some signing off at some point. I think also there'll be some interesting uh, research opportunities involved in the day program, which I've seen very little research uh, around day programs that deal with this population and really meaningful studies that talk about, you know, what's what's the ideal um, uh, environment for that. We're going to have four respite beds. We'll have four overnight beds for the respite program so, uh, initially, and we'll see how it goes from there. But I think there's just lots of opportunities to do um, meaningful research and to do, you know, to follow the mission, which is to create a center of excellence where, you know, We'll find out what works and what doesn't work, and, and hopefully come up with some great ideas that can be. Everything we're doing is shared publicly. We're not we're not going to you know copyright things that uh, you know and try to make royalties or something off. Uh, all the ideas that we uh, come up with and create as a result of the of research done will be you know accessible broadly. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, can you um, define just the term, and I probably should have had you do this earlier, but resident-centered care for people. What does that really mean? I mean, what it means to me is that every person is unique and has a different array of abilities and needs for support. Um, every person has knowledge, experience, a history, and a future. So staff will... As resident-centered carers, we're going to maximize all of those abilities where the resident is at the time. Basically, it's residents start care, and everything starts from there. That's the way I that's the way I look at it. If you could imagine 
for a minute. Being a new employee, and you come to work at Abe's Garden, and you've got we've got let's say we've got three neighborhoods of twelve, and you're involved with the residents in one of those three neighborhoods, and one of the early things you're going to spend some time doing is getting a complete orientation on the life and history of, you know, Jack Smith. You know, Jack went to college here or uh, and worked to the railroad or did this or did that, and, and here's his children and here's his family, and maybe it's a slideshow. We get the families to help put together, mainly for the employees to become connected and bonded that this is a real person with a real history and a real life that they enjoyed and was meaningful with family and and vacations and work life, and so that they really get acclimated to that individual. And you don't have so many people that you can't spend a little time with your staff doing that so that they really become more engaged uh, with each and every person. They know about them. They know their likes and dislikes. They know they don't like salt, but they love pepper. Uh, Those kinds of, of, uh, they seem like small things, but it was the thing that I picked up on the most on my dad when he was in other facilities, that I'd go in all the time and, and I'd see new staff, for one thing, but staff that didn't even know his name, if they didn't know his name, they didn't know too much about his history, uh, were preoccupied with other things uh, in their own lives maybe, but really just trying to create a culture. And that's what it really takes is a culture that that uh, finds it important for people to really have a knowledge of the person. And I think that's what residential-centered uh, re- resident-centered care really means, patient. I mean, that, that, that's the buzzword in, in, in our industry. Everyone says they do resident-centered care. That's like the big word. And it's easy to say you do it. It's very difficult to put it into practice. Um, you know, typically communities that have resident-centered care will have low employee turnover. The two correlate with one another very closely. Um, and obviously, if you've got a lot of turnover, it's hard to know your residents need because you've got to start off, you know, from square one as soon as you come to the community and you get a resident. So it's really the way you treat your employees also and empower them to be able to make decisions. Employees that are empowered and can control their jobs are happier and will stay longer. So it's more, it's, it's, it's a tough thing to do, to be honest with you. Now, when when you talk about um, patient-centered care, uh, most people think about the direct care staff, the, the nurses, the LPNs, the activities people. What about the administrative staff, the housekeeping, the maintenance, um, and some of those that, that people just really don't see as, you know, in their minds for the most part in terms of, really giving care. Um, are those people going to be included in this patient-centered care process as well? Yes. Well, I'm, I envision that most employees will be cross-trained, so housekeeping and director and CNAs will be, uh, will be contributing together. No one should ever say it's not my job. That's not acceptable. So I think if if everybody, if the whole culture doesn't, if not everybody, everybody has to buy into this philosophy, everybody, from the top down and the bottom up. Okay. that To me, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, so many of the men, um, 
a lot of times, you know, I mean, they'll very much relate to the maintenance guy and people might just kind of poo-poo them. But, you know, to that particular person, you know, that's a that's a cohort. That's someone they can hang with or chat with about stuff that maybe they couldn't do with with one of their nursing staff or whatever. And so, you know, in in my speaking and training, one of the things that I, I find really interesting and really beneficial is when there is that cross-training um, with staff that really allow people to um, not only um, with the direct care staff and the, the immediate staff interact, but actually with those who are kind of those surface surface line staff that most people don't think are coming to a facility because they really don't care about people. They care about a job. And, and that's probably really bad verbiage. But in terms of a maintenance guy, you don't typically think of him as a caregiver. You know, he's there to be the fix-it guy. Um, but yet, from a resident standpoint, I don't think that that's true at all in terms of no. that, that they're looking for. So I think I think those little things like that can just make such a huge difference in terms of overall service delivery um, with, with the clients that, that's a very, I think it's a very valid point you make because I think what we would be looking for is a, you know, a spectacular caregiver who also happens to be handy <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know, uh, with great maintenance skills developed over many years. But, but job one is a compassionate kind of uh, individual. And we've got a staff of 30 here today, most of them are obviously in the, in the dining operation at the independent living, and that's been the culture here. This facility was built in the, in the uh, 60s, and it, it has that kind of a culture where, uh, you know, now this is independent living. It's not Alzheimer's. It's not even assisted living, but the average age is 89, and there's, so there is some, some need for that kind of uh, support, but... Um, it's a great point trying to find people who's, who, you know, first they're caregivers and second they are technical, uh, good in their field. Yeah, and sometimes it can just be done. I, I had, had a facility where, where once, once a week, a week they, will, they have will have a party come, and everybody has to partake in a 15 minutes interaction with the resident, no matter what their position, if they're the front desk and answering the phone, if they're the maintenance guy, if they're, you know, food service, whatever it is, but they have to take a break from their regular job and interact and get to know a resident on a one-on-one. And the ones that have done that have just said that it's been amazing, the difference, um, because they, they really understand what they're here to do. Um, and, and that it is more than just a task. You know, it's really about the relationships and just getting to be able to know people's names and helps ease the families as well when when that level of staff gets it too. I mean, everybody's just on, on task there. And I, I didn't mean to get off, off track there with, with what you're doing. But, but, um, but every, inter, every interaction that you have with somebody, in, the, in every Alzheimer person is an activity in itself. The interactions, the, the the two minute conversation, in many cases, is just as important as the um, music group that you have. I mean, that's really where you've got to put it down to that level, basically. So you're right. Everything you said is we agree with. Yeah. Well, and I like that looking at it that everything is an activity. It's not. It's not just a. 
not just a task. It's not uh, just something to check off your list to do. It means more than that, or it should right. with people. Right. Now, given that you guys are going to be this national model of excellence, um, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the economics, you know, of of a place like this? It sounds like it's going to be expensive. Do you guys have any type of pricing in mind or price points that you are willing to share at this point? I know we can't hold you to anything. But, you know, it's, it's also got to be tough in terms of raising the money in this, this economic time, I would think, um, to forge forward. Well, that's, that's a great question. One of the things in this industry that surprised me was that uh, it's all private pay. There's very little Medicare, uh, Medicaid reimbursement for for this kind of care anywhere. Um, people that have uh, uh, long-term care insurance or private pay, those are the options in most cases. Um, I mentioned that we were a 501c3, and uh, the idea, my background originally was a CPA, so I've kind of been thinking about how does the economics of this work. Yeah, you can you can do something like this. If you first first thing you do is go out and raise $10 million, then the rest of it is easy. Um, so it, it, that is not something that can happen in a, you don't want to build a center of excellence where, well, that's how you did it, but it, that is not going to work in every community in the country. So, But we have raised over $6 million for the construction and um, conversion of the existing facility. And um, the goal is to have the pricing um, right at market. So the idea would be that you create a self-sustaining facility. Um, and the way we've done it, uh, every facility would have to approach it differently based on their economics, their land costs. But we have made Park Manor, which was already here, uh, positive cash flow. So we don't have a we don't have a deficit situation with the existing facility. That is extremely important. You tried to do what we're doing from scratch, went out and got bond financing, bought land, and had a ramp up period. You're not going to be full the first day you open necessarily. You've got a lot of training costs, payroll to get going. But because we have an existing operation, we have a full dining service already. We have a, a maintenance staff. We have housekeeping. We have a concierge service that provides um, you know, front desk and security. So a lot of these things, this infrastructure already exists here for the facility that we have. Um, then the development money that we raise for the nonprofit will be used exclusively for the construction of we're renovating one floor for assisted living and then the Abe's Garden facility around the perimeter and the park areas. The key for us, and this may be more detailed than your listeners want, but I, I, this was part of figuring out and trying to come up with the economics was a, was a, a seminal part of the, the project going forward. But what we've tried to do is to decide there are certain things within a facility that can be uh, positive cash flow, create some, some level of margin, even though we're a nonprofit. Um, and they are reimbursable, in fact. So we have a wellness program, physical therapy. They produce a small amount of margin, and those margins they do create are able to subsidize those parts of the program that are uh, running in a deficit. Um, the second thing we're, we're, we're doing is that um, um, we want to be at market. Uh, the fact that we've got the Vanderbilt support gives us some um, some support in terms of uh, talent and volunteerism and students. We'll have interns and residents going through. Uh, those are well-educated, smart, dedicated, compassionate people. 
but they're not a big cost for us. So anytime any traditional hospital program has a resident and intern program, it's great for the hospital usually, and not so great financially for the person who's learning and training, but that's a part of their education process. So that's another benefit that we think we'll have. Um, so it's just a combination of things that make the cost consistent with what the cost will be for other facilities um, that offer this service. In Tennessee, the range is probably, you know, four to $5,000 a month. Andrew came from originally New Orleans and then in, in Illinois. And, you know, different parts of the country have different costs of living, and you know, some have unions and some don't. But here in Tennessee, we, we expect for the facility and the cost per month to be um, commensurate with what other facilities that are trying to do this uh, are in this country. So okay. that's, a, that's a very abbreviated answer for a lot of detail that is behind it. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Um, can you give us also um, just a little more detail in terms of some of the, the, the campus features in terms of how you came about working with your architect and what type of detail is going to be in the building that you think is a, is is unique um, and different compared to others there? Well, one of the things we did uh, almost four years ago, probably maybe four and a half years ago, is when we when I, I mentioned earlier touring a lot of other facilities in the United States. Um, I've been to, uh, you know, literally 10 or 15 different states looking at other facilities that were recommended as being, oh, before you do this, go see, go see, the Silverado facilities or the Copper Ridge facility or the one in Tupelo. Uh, We've been to a lot of places and looked at a lot of facilities. And we took our architect with us. He toured these facilities with us, um, took a lot of copious notes along the way. Uh, We had sent him to two different architectural seminars specifically focused in this field and senior living, um, acute skill care nursing, um, new techniques, new designs, uh, the use of lighting, the use of um, uh, the, the lights in the facility will, will change based on the time of day to give, to give cues to the patients. So the hallway that you go through to the dining may be a little different in the, in the evening than it might be in the, in the early morning, those kinds of things. So the architect has been a, a part of it, and he's also studied from architects who spend their whole careers in this field. So to try to get the best ideas um, from inception. Some of the things we're doing... Um, we mentioned the geothermal. Um, it's, a, it's a larger upfront cost for uh, air conditioning heating coming from the ground. But long term, with utility costs rising wherever part of the country you're in, um, we think that'll give us a great return. This will be the fourth project outside of healthcare that I've been involved in using geothermal, and it works really well in Tennessee. I know other, other places that might not. Um, the facility itself, a lot of open space, a lot of program space, um, individual units that are really designed for the population, Andrew mentioned, um, allowing the selection of what they might wear. But as, as people that live with family members with this disease, that can be a nightmare. They like to pull everything out of the closet sometimes. So limited choices, a, a place where clothes are, are, are locked up, you know, um, in, in mass, but the selection of a smaller level of choices for today, or tonight, tomorrow, are available to that person, giving them a sense of independence. Um, the living space is, I won't go into a lot of uh, detail. There is a lot of detail on our, on our website on the specific space, and people are welcome to look at that. Um, but 
spaces that deal with, with a private space, family spaces, a space for children uh, to come and visit and to have a good time. We're going to build a playground um, so that the children don't uh, not want to come. They will want to come, a, a nice playground. And, and, and frankly, um, most seniors love watching children on a playground, you know, having a good time and enjoying themselves and doing what they might do if they were visiting their grandparents at their own home or vice versa. So, Andrew, you may want to add some color to that, but just trying to be centered to the, to the residents. I think you answered it very well, Mike. Okay, great. Now, um, Mary Beth had a question um, in the chat box. She, she feels that we really need more male care providers and that, that most, um, most um, positions, you know, are underpaid. Uh, what are your feelings on those two comments? You know, I most it's a lot of um, residents in in units demographically are female, and my in my experience, a lot of female residents people don't like a male taking care of them, direct care staff. That's just something that I've noticed. Um, but I think. Um, so as far as staff, I think it's important to be caring. I'm not saying we wouldn't have male um, caregivers also, but um, I'm not I'm not sure that that's as important as somebody who has good skills and is a, is a caring person. Um, so um, and I think hope salaries need to be competitive. People want to work in a place where they're compensated for fairly, and that'll be a goal of ours to really have competitive salaries. This will be a place where people want to work. And hopefully the salaries will be a part of that. It's great. I think that if, if your goal, if, if how you define your dividends are great care and a happy population as opposed to a distribution check, uh, then you can do a lot of things, I think, with, with a nonprofit that maybe a for-profit couldn't do. I'm not saying there aren't great for-profit, and, and I'm, I'm sure there are. Um, but I think one thing I, I, I learned from my dad's experience was that he also liked having men around. Uh, the facility he was in was, as, as most facilities in this country, were predominantly female. Uh, they may have had 35 people at this facility, and maybe there were four men and 31 females, something like that. And the staff were predominantly female. But we involved, they they did one thing very well. They involved males in the, in the programming, but not in the direct care as much. Um, because Andrew's right, uh, men don't mind you know, the tradition of women nurses and nursing and caregivers. Um, but but many women don't want male direct caregivers for whatever uh, reason, and some of the reasons are obvious. But uh, but involved in other kinds of programming, music program, art program, um, other activity programs. Um, we have drivers at the independent living facility here that are, that are male, and those are great. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but, you know, you have to be reasonable about um, having an opportunity to have interaction with, with both genders, I think. And, and Mike is right. I've had the opportunity to work with just outstanding, um, for example, music therapists that were males, and it, it, they were such a plus on the unit. So, um, so yes, I, I think that's certainly important also. Wonderful. I think that that makes a big a big difference as well. Um, 
in making sure that they are care, a caring population and then working around it. it. I mean, it would be nice if the ratios were a little bit more even, but it, it's just not where it's at, and I don't know if that's something that's going to be able to be changed in the future, um, in the immediate future anyway. So um, anything else that you would like to um, state that maybe we haven't covered about Abe's Garden in terms of... Um, how you'll be different or, or services that you'll offer, or do you think we've pretty much covered it? Um, you know, I think, I think we've covered it. If your listeners have seen specific programs or facilities uh, in this country, they're doing something particularly well, something unusual, um, I hope they'll go on our website and send us an email. We are looking for the best ideas. We do not have a patent on perfection or the ideal. We're, we're really trying to build something that takes the best ideas and the best practices around the country and, and see what will work to create a world-class facility. That's our goal. Yeah, the, the Wellshire here in Bloomington in Minnesota is a, is a brand new facility that just opened up last month that's, that's quite different. And that might be one of interest to you. I can shoot you some information and, and let you get a hold of Tom on that. He kind of had a similar situation with his his dad um, having the disease and, you know, got into this. And this is now his second um, community that he's built. And, uh, you know, it's just turned into his mission. Kathy Borey's got a comment on here. Let me see. Um, well, they have input from the residents on how they want to see things evolve is one of the questions. Uh, an ongoing committee, perhaps, um, so that they have some say? I Again, we wouldn't be resident-centered if we didn't have residents' input. As any modality that works, including a committee, would be absolutely wonderful. I think that's great. Yes. Now, one question that we didn't really go over, or maybe we did, and I, I missed it when the Skype was cutting in and out here, but um, do you have a particular stage that you think will be most common for people to enter your your um, community on that they would be in? Or I know you said it's a prog you know progressive, so people could be all stages, but. In terms of your target right now, do you have do you have a particular stage in mind? You know, it's interesting. Andrew and I uh, were in Houston, Texas last week touring a facility, and um, it was strictly uh, involved with this population. And we asked that very question because we wanted to be able to, you know, obviously people in the day program are people who are living at home and are, are typically in early stage or earlier stage and this facility uh, provided three different real neighborhoods uh, areas one the first one was called social uh, social the social neighborhood was was people that were really high functioning that had memory issues and early stage but were were active and involved and could do a lot more. They could be involved in a lot of other things, uh, outings and other kinds of things, yet they needed the safety and security of a facility and, and didn't have someone, I guess, at home that, that could do that for them at that point. The second was a supportive group, uh, a little later stage, um, but needed more support. And the third stage, do you remember what they called it? It was a sensory. Sensory, which were later stages. 
And by separating the three stages as best they could, um, they they had a lot of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they had a, a more favorable result. Because if you can imagine someone with an early stage uh, status in the disease, and they come to visit for the first time and they see people or they see their, their, their neighbors in their unit are much more severe in the disease, um, it's very depressing to them. They say, you know, well, I'm not at that level. They, they, you know, my dad in the beginning said, wait, well, I, you know, why do I need to be here? Um, so by having some level of segregation by the stage they're in, and I think that's probably something we're going to look at for the three neighborhoods, um, there are clearly more people in that middle stage than the early or the late. Um, at least that was their experience nationwide. But uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. I don't really have a good answer, but you, we really want to be able to serve this population from the front end when they really don't even need residential care. They just need a day program all the way through hospital. Sure. Okay. Um, I, this is kind of an interesting question. What kind of response are you getting from other organizations that you're going to visit in terms of Wonderful. what it is you're doing? I mean, I think people want to talk about their successes and people want to share information. Um, we're all doing this hopefully for the right reasons, so I think everybody's been very supportive. Um, I know we we want to share everything that we have with anybody who's out there because we want to help people. We want we want care in this country to improve for people who are um, in a community with Alzheimer's. So it's been very positive from our experience. Uh, the, the facility we visited in Houston last week was a for-profit facility, and they were just as, you know, as warm and welcoming. Uh, spent hours with us, toured the facility, senior staff involved. Couldn't could have been nicer. Couldn't have been more uh, sharing. And if anybody on, on, on your callers just send an email, we, we, you can go on the website and sign up for our mailing list, and we'll send you. We will not send you a solicitation. I promise. We'll send you. A newsletter that we we publish every quarter on our progress and um, things we're doing and 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 if anybody wants that they're welcome to uh, to have that. And that's just at www.abesgarden.org, correct? Correct. And um, and one of the things that I really liked about your website that I I don't see many doing, but you're you're already trying to recruit and incorporate volunteers. Um, into into the program, and I, I just think that's wonderful in terms of creating that that spirit of community, because there are a lot of people I think out there that that do want to have a voice and help out, um, and learn more. You know, I, I just think that that's a, a another neat little piece um, that you guys are doing different um, in the forefront of things. So. Um, I have, uh, I think we're kind of getting close to wrapping up here, but Mike, I have a question for you, and this might be uh, kind of strange, but what do you think your dad would say today, looking down at what all you're doing? Well, I, uh, and to be honest, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I think he'd be pleased. Uh, my dad was a very quiet, uh, reserved, private kind of guy. Um, there were four, four of us kids, and each one got something different from both of our parents, we all do. And I think he'd be proud. I think he's proud of all of his kids. Um, my, my two brothers have been fantastic in, in their 
effort. My sister's dedicated her life to this. She worked with us in this project. This is her full-time life, too, and she's a, a, got a master's in an area of social work, so she's highly engaged in the project. So I think we'd be proud of, of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, he to, uh, he started to really, I think, establish the first uh, integrated medical practice in Nashville, Tennessee in the 50s. Uh, he was going to have a, uh, back in the, people that listen to this and, and know history, know that in the South, you, your medical practices were integrated, uh, were not integrated, they were segregated back in the 50s. And his was one of the first practices. He was never going to, not one day was going to live with that kind of a practice. So that's the kind of guy he was. And uh, um, he would be very interested that what we're doing would be available to people. That would be one of his, he'd be asking me, how, how are you going to have this be a facility that, that you can have something other than people who have a lot of money and can afford to come there, Mike? That, that's my question. He would challenge me on that, uh, just in terms of making sure there was uh, diversity here and there was uh, a, uh, a sense of uh, uh, accessibility to those that were economically disadvantaged. So that's one of the things we have to struggle with and try to think about as we go forward. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, um, Andrew, do you have any advice that you would lend to someone who maybe just got diagnosed, along with their family, too? Yeah, well, obviously, people have to start by learning as much as possible about the disease. And, and I would say that people can live with Alzheimer's for over 10 years. And... For most of that time, they can function with less help than maybe most people think. I'd also, there's a wonderful book that I just, uh, I'm just finished by John Weissel called I'm Still Here. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. But it really looks mm-hmm. at the positive things that of Alzheimer's. It's like a glass half full instead of half empty. And I think that, um, you know, the book discusses how the skills and memories of a person with Alzheimer's don't completely diminish with time. So, you know, there's windows for connection and communication. So I think that people need to really explore and, and to see that the person is still there, just as the name of the book it says. Um, um, and then while they're at home, try to establish an environment of as much freedom as possible for the per- and structure as possible for their loved one when, while they're living at home. I think that's important. So, uh, Wonderful. Well, great. Well, I can't thank the two of you enough for being part of the show today. You gave us a lot of wonderful information and things to look forward to. Um, Again, the website is www.abesgarden.org. That's A-B-E-S-G-A-R-D-E-N.org. And feel free to sign up for their newsletter and kind of peruse the website, it's uh, it's very interesting and very, very well done. Um, any last comments for, for our listeners? No, I, I, I want to thank you uh, for what you're doing and the contribution you're making to uh, making the world a better place for people that suffer from this disease, their families, and uh, uh, what you're doing is uh, equally important work or more. So thank you very much for inviting us and and for hearing the story. Thank you.
Well, great. Thanks for thanks for being part. Um, I would just like to ask all of our listeners if you would help spread the word about Alzheimer Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed the show, you can push it out through social media. You can Twitter and Facebook or email it. Um, we would appreciate that very much, as well as Abe's Garden would love people to help you push out their story as well. And if you do have some communities that you think might be of interest to them, like they said, shoot them an email, go to that website, again, www.aidsgarden.org, and let them know about about a community that you think is cutting edge and kind of leading that, that state of excellence because they're definitely interested in hearing about it. Our next show is scheduled for the 23rd, and that will be at um, 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time, so that's 2 Eastern and 11 o'clock um, Pacific time, and I'll have Laura Beck with the Eden Alternative on, and she's going to talk about creating quality of life for elders and their care partners, and then on the 26th, we'll have author Gary Joseph LeBlanc, who wrote the book Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness, and then on November 4th, we've got... Um, Carolyn Brent and Amina Fuller, who is running for California State Senate, they are going to be talking about Carolyn's um, journey with her dad, and she's written a book, Why Wait? The Baby Boomer's Guide for Preparing Emotionally, Financially, and Legally for a Parent's Death. And her dad also was on this journey of Alzheimer's, and she will also talk about the dysfunction of family and um, all of the all of the hoops that she had to jump through. It's quite quite an incredible story. So I hope you'll be able to join us live for those shows because we'd love to hear your comments and questions. If not, you can always review them in the archives later. If you happen to be memory impaired and you're interested in sharing your story with the world, please shoot me an email. I would love to talk with you, and maybe you can be our next guest. We purposely um, designed the show just to be laid back and comfortable. All we're doing here is talking on the phone and um, visiting like good friends and spreading the word. It's just a nice, easy format, um, again, to be able to share what it is you're going through and and your story um, to become uh, another level in terms of an advocate. So we look forward to having a great conversation and doing some learning and laughter again on September 23rd with Laura Beck of the Eden Alternative. As always, I want to remind you to focus on the three simple things that your memory chip teaches you. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And you can download your free memory chip at www.alzheimerspeaks.com. Again, thanks for listening and have a blessed day as you think ahead to go ahead. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.